We will be in Exodus chapter 12, 21 through 28. Exodus 12, 21 through 28. Prepare your hearts to hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to, that, to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover. For he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. And as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. May God bless the reading of his word to your hearts. You may be seated. Well, this morning's title of the message is Fear the One Who Passes Through and Over. The words taken right from the scripture itself. I want to get you thinking by way of a question. Have you ever struggled to convey your faith not to the stranger? That seems difficult enough. But to the one who actually cares for you but is not a believer. So let me get some things, that, some relationships running through your mind. Maybe it's a good friend who you know cares for you, but is not a believer. How do you convey your faith to them? What's the right way? Where is the starting point? Or how about the sibling that knows you so well, and yet they don't know your faith because as adults, you, you are in a different place, maybe geographically or, or wherever it might be. You have come to know the Lord as an adult, and now you want to share your faith with the sibling that certainly loves you, but you don't want to be the one that messes up the conveying of your faith. Or how about, parents, even your own children? No child comes into this world with faith that is salvific. They certainly have faith in their parents' love for them, but they need the faith that Christ Jesus gives them, that only Christ Jesus can give them. How do you convey your faith so that this person understands this, this little mind grasps it, that maybe by God's mercy this child will come to know the Lord as you know them and have a faith that is a saving faith? Well, these are the questions that hopefully you will see our answer today. And you will leave here with a better understanding of this is one way. This is a major way. This is a major account, a major inroad into a conversation with your child. It is what God gave the Israelites a command as a, as a means of sharing their faith. We are going to see today that God identifies the Passover account symbolized certainly by the the meal, the Passover meal, but the whole account. The meal is, I hate to say simply, but the meal is one component in the Passover account. It allows the, the Israelite people to engage and experience and bring to a reality what they have experienced in at least physical salvation, and they can share that with the child. But the, the meal is only one component. And you will see that God intends the Passover to be the primary means of conveying the message of faith to their children. 
The idea of faith is in kernel form in Genesis 3.15. When we see the fall of mankind and we see that God says, look, in cursing, i.e. when bringing a curse upon Satan, he lets Satan know that one day there will be one that comes that will crush your skull and defeat you as the one who is the enemy of God and man, who has caused man to fall. That, that piece of information is what we refer to as the kernel or the seed of faith. Today, we see that that has sprouted into the oak it will one day be, and it has limbs. It is still small, but we can identify it more clearly by the branches of, of the understandings that are all encapsulated, and maybe that's the wrong way, maybe all that branch out from the trunk of this, this grand oak that it will, it will come to be. This is what we see in the Passover. It's that kernel taking form, taking shape, having greater understanding for the people of God. But in order to, to do this, we need to back up. But first, take a look at your bulletin. We must leave with this truth. This is our takeaway or our call to action for the, for the day. We must leave with this or, we, or I have failed as a pastor to give you insight into the sanctification or some means of encouragement or some means of knowledge that makes transformation occur in, in your heart. The call to action is this. We must reverentially fear, serve, and share the one who strikes his enemies and spares his people, his own people. That's the truth. We must reverentially fear. We're going to see what that looks like. We must serve. We're going to see what that looks like. And we must certainly share, and he's going to deal with this from a sharing component to your own children. Remember that as a church, that we understand children are not just the young of age. They are the new in the faith. And we have a, a responsibility to share just because your physical children aren't here, remember you are, we are the people of God. We are one people who take this as a family and share this truth. We need to back up, though. We need to lay some ground. This is biblical theology I'm going to give you. Today, I'm going to give you the overarching truths. When I've taken you through Exodus, when we've hit the chapters, we get down in the weeds and we march along. And every once in a while, I need us to go up so that you can say, oh, this is where we are in the plan of God. If this is the beginning, this is Genesis, by the time we get to Revelation, we're here, and this overarching truth is here. It is an opportunity to understand with greater appreciation how big the Passover is. How many times in the Bible does, the God, does God look back and have the, all of the... Um, Prophets look back and say, remember the Passover, remember the Passover. Why is this so important? We need to grasp why it's so important, so we need to back up. I'm going to take you through this. Let's do this now. Let's start in Exodus 1. I'm going to give you overarching truths that's going to march us forward, and then we're going to, it's going to be a little bit of a, of a ramp up before we get to our text. Let's see if we can understand. Exodus 1, it deals with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and the Egyptians feared the Israelites. And so what do they do? They become oppressive. There's too many of them. They have increased significantly more quickly than the Egyptians have. And now the Egyptians recognize them as a force to be feared. The, the Egyptians do not want to lose power. They do not want to lose control. That's what, their, what fear is driving them. And we have a, a strange thing happen in chapter 1. Now, we know that chapters were not in the Old Testament. They came later that, that chapters were added. But it helps us realize truths that, these, that, that are compartmentalized, if you will, and they connect to the next one. So when I say this, this and I refer to the chapter, we know that it, it's one long truth, but we, the chapter breaks help us. In chapter 1, God is only mentioned in the context of the midwives of the Hebrews. And I want to suggest to you that the, the midwives of the Hebrews is how it is stated in Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew, and it gets switched when it comes into the English, and, they say, and it gets written, the Hebrew midwives. 
And so when we hear it, we think of midwives that are Hebrew. And I want to suggest to you that I fall into the camp of the theologians that see this as the midwives are not Hebrews. The midwives are, in fact, Egyptian women that have been called in by Pharaoh to make sure that something is carried out. Now, when you realize what is asked to be carried out, you realize no Hebrew would betray their people in this way. These are Egyptian midwives, but they're going to do something very different. So we see that the, the Egyptian midwives are called in. They are, they are instructed to kill all the male ba- babies, but the, 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 the Exodus 1 tells us, but the midwives feared God. They don't use the name Yahweh. Moses uses the name God. It's the same name that the Egyptians and every other nation refer to their gods, Elohim. It means great one or mighty one or God. Small g for, the, for all the other cultures, big G for our culture. They have multiple gods, multiple little g's. In fact, Elohim is actually plural. We have one God and three persons. So we see this. There's this play that Moses is doing with the Hebrew here. They feared God. We don't quite understand why they fear God because Moses doesn't say it. Or do we understand? These women recognize that, look, God has increased the Israelites more than the Egyptians. God is the God who is growing up these people. God is the God of power. Who this Israelite God is, they do not know, but they know he is powerful enough to to make a nation within a nation. That is a threat to their own nation. He appears more powerful than the Egyptian gods. The Egyptian midwives seem to know more about the Israelite God than the Israelites. We don't hear of the Israelites relying on the power of God to take them out of this oppressive state of harsh labor. We have none of that by Moses. He starts off, God, by way of using Moses as an instrument, point out that it is, it is the, the Egyptian midwives that reach out to God. It is one thing for the Israelites to historically know about Yahweh, and it is a complete different thing to trust and obey. So the midwives fear the Israelite God over, the, over Pharaoh himself, and there is an irony that we don't hear the Israelites calling out to God to save them. The Egyptian midwives seem to know this foreign God better than the Israelites. But because the Midwives who were called to kill the babies once they came, once they were, were, were born, because they do not do this, because they, they fear God, the God of the Israelites, Pharaoh takes another action. He takes the action of saying that every male born an Israelite be thrown into the Nile River. Interesting enough, the Nile River was, was considered by the Egyptians the giver of life. And Pharaoh is asking that the Nile be the the taker of life. Death would occur by way of the the male children were to be thrown into the Nile. The chapter one one ends without any reference to the God of the Israelites by the Israelites. And then we get to chapter two. We learn of a crazy set of events. God is not going to be listed one time in these events. And yet God's fingerprints are all over these events. You hear God through Moses using this as a means of saying, can't you see God's power and God's presence? God's leading in the midst of this? Listen to this. So we we find in in this irony that Pharaoh's daughter finds a basket with a Hebrew baby floating on the Nile River and doesn't want to kill the baby. She wants the baby as her own. No, she's not a servant. 
of Pharaoh's. She is not one of the citizens of the kingdom. She is a daughter of the king, and she wants the Hebrew baby as her own. She doesn't want to kill it. Let's continue on with the irony. Moses' sister, a Hebrew, offers to give to provide a Hebrew mother as a, as a nursing mother to nurse this child. And what we see is that Pharaoh's daughter accepts a Hebrew mother. Really? Think about this, how ironic this is. We, this, 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 this is supposed to be a dividing point. Hebrews are the enemy. You're going to allow this to happen? You're going to listen to this little Jewish girl on the bank of the river and say, that sounds like a great idea. The irony is overwhelming. Moses' biological mother becomes his nursing mother. Come on. Can't make this stuff up. This is, this is just random. Do you see what, what God is doing through this whole story? He's saying, I'm present. I'm here. This stuff can't possibly be random. He's not mentioned, and yet he's all over this. Rather than being executed, Moses grows up not just alive. He grows up in the royal family home. Under their, their learning, he gets taught the best of what is, uh, the Egyptians had to offer. Come on. The Nile was commanded by Pharaoh to be an instrument of death, but the God of the Israelites used it as an instrument of life. Instead of death, there is salvation. That's what's, what's moving in the background here, that the, the Israelites would hopefully be getting as they're hearing this later read to them um, as, as this book is, is written by Moses himself. That's part one of, of the chapter two. We've got part two. It, the, part two ends with these three verses referencing God. Exodus 2, 23 to 25. During those many days, the God of Egypt, excuse me, I said that definitely wrong. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out. Did you notice they groaned because of their slavery? It's an okay motive. It's a motive that, we, we, that got them to call out to their God. Why were they not calling out earlier? The God who they know is the creator over all. Do we not see our own suffering in our own lives? You wonder why you're suffering. Why has God brought this suffering into my life? Does God need to use suffering to get us to cry out to him, to know him more personally? We see that happening here. Their cry, continuing on, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, still named God, no reference of Yahweh yet. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. Notice what the, how that verse ends in your Bible. Chapter, excuse me, verse 25 ends. I'm going to read verse 25 again. It's in the Hebrew. A lot of times the, when we translate it from the Hebrew to the English, things get moved around so that we understand them. God bless the ESV. They did not move it. Listen to this. God saw the people of Israel. And this is actually a new sentence, but we see that, that dash mark. That dash means that there's a connector going. These are like two sentences that are so connected that we don't want to use a period. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God knew what? What is it that God knew? It's, it's, it's left hanging there at the end. God knew the Israelites had a need for rescue, for salvation. God knows the Israelites, and the irony is, the Israelites don't really know God. In fact, we've talked about this over and over again. The book of Exodus, taking the people of God out to, the, to Mount Sinai is to lay down for them, this is who I am as your God. So the whole book is, is God teaching them. We're in chapter, we're going to move now to chapter 3, and we're going to see something happens. This is something that we should, as Christians, see a connection to immediately and go, oh, wow. Maybe I haven't seen this before, but this is clearly 
a connection to our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. So we see, well, let me first give you a little more information. God in chapter 3 appears and personally reveals himself. God appears and personally reveals himself. What does Jesus Christ do when he comes? Jesus Christ appears and personally reveals himself as the, as the incarnate son of God. That's Jesus' ministry. This Passover is the precursor to that. God appears, God in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to try and prove to you today. Um, it personally comes down and reveals himself. He comes down from heaven and rever- reveals himself as the angel of Yahweh, a title that we have looked at before. We have, I've preached on it before. I went back and found it. If you want to uh, listen to the, the sermon in, uh, that we have on our uh, website, it's dated May 2nd, 2020. It was preached back in Genesis, and it's, it's called, Who is the Angel of Yahweh, or Who is the Angel of the Lord, and it is Yahweh. I'm going to try and take us through a little compressed version of that sermon just because there are people that weren't here that are part of our church now or at least regular attenders or are listening now and part of this congregation that don't know this truth and I've got to share it with you because the Passover will have so many more connections. You will see Jesus in the Old Testament as it is intended by God for you to see and understand Jesus in the Old Testament. Let's look at Exodus 3, 2 through 6. We got a problem. The Israelites don't know their God. They don't even know him so, so well. They know him historically. They don't know him as well as the Egyptian, Midian, excuse me, the Egyptian midwives who were trusting and obeying him over their own false gods. So what does he do? God in chapter 3 is going to introduce himself to the people of God. He's going to, to introduce him by name, by way of name, Yahweh, which means the, the one who is, I am the one who has always been, the one who has no beginning and no, and no end in our minds. He is, and we've learned that Yahweh also has this understanding of I am the God who covenants. And he has covenanted with this people. That these are the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These are the covenanted people of God. So we see when we hear the name Yahweh, we think of the one who is who always has been, he is the covenant one. Both of those things need to come into our mind. That's when Moses uses it, that's what he's getting at. Because that's what God has shared with us. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter 3, 2 through 6. If you have your Bibles, please follow. Because I want you to see it. I cannot convince you. The scripture needs to convince you. The Holy Spirit needs to convince you. It says this in verse 2. And the angel of Yahweh. Now keep in mind, when angels appear to men in the Bible... How do men recognize angels? They recognize them. They take some form typically that, well, whenever they engage men, they take the form of men, of mankind, particularly men. And so they recognize something. Oftentimes we'll hear that there will be a light association that causes a differentiation. So we know it's not just a, a person, a hu- another human being. Or their clothing will be white or pure or glowing or shiny. The Bible uses all those terms to, to, to differentiate that this is not just a human being. This is one who has, taken, who has come down from heaven and taken the form of men. That's why oftentimes he says, fear not. You'll see angels say, fear not, fear not. But they, the, the, the Israelites have no category for God taking form. And thus, God takes the form of man. Let's watch this. Let's carry this out. And the angel of Yahweh appeared. That is critical. When you are reading your Old Testament Bible and you hear of an appearance, God in manifest form as some form or another, we will see that you were going to see in Exodus that, that the angel of the Lord takes the, is seen in, in the fire the pillar of fire in the pillar of smoke or cloud sometimes referred to. Um, you see him in the burning bush. There is a form within. So you see some physical manifestations tied to him some, of nature itself sometimes, but he's in the physical manifestation. He's not necessarily the physical manifestation. So let's take a look. And what I mean is of nature. So let's read this. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him, Moses, in 
a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He, Moses, looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, while, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh, whoa, 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 time out. We were just talking about the angel of the Lord. Where did Yahweh come into the picture? What happens is the writer defers to the angel of, of the Lord as Yahweh. And you go, ah, oh, that's kind of a jump. How do you know that hermeneutic? How do you use that to, where did you get that tool to say that's what's happening? How come there's not an angel of the Lord and there's Yahweh God the Father? How could it be that you're saying that the angel of the Lord is Yahweh? Great question. You need to be Bereans. I'm glad you asked it. So let's go to Genesis chapter 16 with Sarai and Hagar. Genesis chapter 16. Just turn into your Bible. Please turn there because I want you to read it just like I want you to read the other stuff. Don't buy what your pastor's preaching unless you can confirm it in the Bible. I'm not trying to put one past you. I'm trying to show you what God has laid out so that we can get it. And it says this. This is uh, uh, because of the contempt that Hagar showed Sarai after she, it was, it was, she conceived by way of God, Ishmael. Sarai says, I don't want to have anything to do with this chick. I, she's gone. I don't want her. By the way, Hagar is an Egyptian slave, an Egyptian slave woman. Isn't the irony there from our story all the way that the Egyptians and the, uh, are the slaves in the early one, and now by the time we get to the, the Passover, it is the Hebrews that are the slaves. So, so Sarai has been, excuse me, so Hagar has been sent out by Sarai. I don't want her near me. She's shown contempt towards me. I'm the one that has not been able to give birth yet. This is wrong. I don't want her near. I gave her but I don't want her now, and I want her, her and her child gone. So this is where we pick up in verse 7 of chapter 16. The angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, in the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of Yahweh also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. Interesting. Not an angel. I will surely. Now, the argument goes that, well, and uh, someone who comes in the name of the Lord is actually just doing what the Lord says. So it's not really him. He's speaking for Yahweh. Follow this and see if you can see that 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 argument disappears. And I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of of Yahweh said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Verse 13. So she called the name of Yahweh. Wait, 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 wait. Time out. She was talking to the angel of the Lord. See the hermeneutic? She uses, she changes on it. She uses the name Yahweh. She is, this angel of the Lord is Yahweh. This is the God of the Hebrews. We can see this. So she called the name of, of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen, whoa, 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 if you see the invisible God, the Father, or the Spirit, the two persons of the Trinity that are spirit and cannot be seen. If you see them in the Old Testament, if you see God, it's an indication you're dealing with the person of Christ in pre-incarnate form, not pre-incarnate flesh. Christ is not going to come in flesh until the New Testament, until the New Covenant. It's pre-incarnate form. So we see this. You are a God of seeing, she said. Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Wow. So let's continue on and see if we can get this. So now we see the hermeneutic. We should already, if we were Hebrews, we would already get that the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh is a reference to God when he manifests himself in person. They don't know it's the Son of God. 
They don't have that concept shared yet, but they know that when God manifests himself in, per in person by way of the title of the angel of Yahweh, he is Yahweh. So we have Yahweh as Father, and you can hear his voice in, in the, when he speaks, he will speak audibly to the Old Testament saints, but he never appears. He never presents himself in human form. He is spirit. Only the person of the Trinity uh, 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 manifests himself as form. So let's continue on here. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight and why the bush is not burnt burned. When Yahweh, Moses recognizing that the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh, when Yahweh said this, he turned aside to see, to see, to see God. He's making sure that we connect, that, that the angel of the Lord is God. Called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground holy because of the presence of a holy God. This is an act of worship. Angels don't allow themselves to be worshipped because they know only God is to be worshipped. And he said, who is this that said this? This is the angel of God that's referred to, excuse me, the angel of Yahweh that's referred to as Elohim, which is God, and he's also referred to as Yahweh. And, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. It's the same thing that Joseph did when he wrestled with the man that he called in the end of his wrestling, Peniel, face to face with El. I have seen God and I have not been destroyed. That's what Jacob's testimony was when he wrestled with some heavenly being that took the form of a man. He names him God, El. We need to see that this is not new. This is not revolutionary. This is something that doesn't get preached often in our Christian churches, but this is the truth of Christ's presence in the Old Testament. And Moses said, hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. Then Yahweh said in verse 7, I have surely... Uh, then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of the taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now listen closely, Christian. Listen, Christian, what he says next. Do you not see this is the mission of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? He does it first in the Old Testament under a physical salvation. He's going to come secondly in the New Testament uh, to bring forth a spiritual salvation. The physical sa salvation is the, ant the anti-type, excuse me, the type, the lesser, the more dim, the, 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 the less great picturing of what's going to happen with the anti-type, which is greater. Listen what he says. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. In other words, out of the control of those who are led by Pharaoh. Remember we talked early on? Fellow, excuse me, Pharaoh is the antithesis of God. He is the one that who, who wears the serpent of the snake as a figurine on his, on his uh, royal headwear, his royal diadem. He's supposed to image because he is that. He's the, he, when I say is that, he's the human manifestation of the evilness of who Satan is. And therefore, the Egyptians are those that are his followers, the seeds of the serpent. So we see this cosmic battle taking place in this physical salvation taking place. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay, finally done with the background. You're like, really? Aren't you about ready to wrap this thing up? No, we're going to move more quickly, but I want to show you. I haven't shown you completely. Hopefully, you're still, some of you are still going, eh, I don't know, it kinda, I see what you're saying, but I need to see something from the New Testament. Good. Let's see what Christ has to say about him himself being the one who delivered the people of, 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 of the Israelites out of their bondage. So let's start with Exodus 12, 21 to 23. I want to go through it as I like to do. I like to give some of the, the, uh, 
the Hebrew so we can, it can pop off the page and we can start to see the beauty of God's, what he is, is teaching us in his word. This is uh, verses 21 through 23 in, in uh, Exodus 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel, of Israel and said to them, in other words, leaders of each tribe, I want you to come here. You're coming here because I'm going to show you what you need to make sure that your people do. You are the elder. You're going to go back to your tribes and say, do this to your, to your, your, uh, your houses, the entryways to your houses. And they will know. It's a way of, of demonstrating that, that God is working through the people of God, the leadership of God. We see that in the church. We see it hopefully now in the preaching itself. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go. And select lambs for yourself according to your clans. And kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. And it doesn't mean a bunch like, oh, there's a bunch of people standing over there. A bunch in, in, in a florist terminology is a grouping squished together so that you can use it as a means of, of, of uh, splattering something or, or spreading. There's probably a better word. Spreading something. Dobbing and spreading around. That's what the bunch is referred to here. Uh, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the, do- and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. The blood signifies that the people inside are placing themselves under the safety, the protection, you might even say the salvation of God. The blood is the blood from the sacrificed lamb that is going to be that is placed over the doorway so that it demonstrates those inside the doorway have have received some form of protection. There's also a different thing going on. Think about this. There's going to be a death in every household. There is going to be a death in every household. It says it in the Bible. When, when When God himself sees the blood, the blood represents the death. There was a death in the Hebrew household. The death is the death of the sacrificial lamb. Who is Christ Jesus? He is the sacrificial lamb. Let's let's continue on and hold that thought as as we get to that. And so we continue on here. None of you shall go out. Why? Because you leave the protection. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For Yahweh, that would be Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity. We already established that. So Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house to strike it, to strike you, excuse me. Fascinating. Who more personally connected to the blood and recognizing the blood is the blood of sacrifice than the person of Christ Jesus himself. Yahweh going through. It says he goes through to strike those that have no marking of the blood. And yet he goes over. He does not enter the houses that have the sacrifice of the lamb which represents his own blood shed for his people. They are not sacrificed because there has been a sacrifice. There, when I, well, let me say it this way. That gives a little bit of a, a confusion on the atonement. There is, because, someone, because the lamb has been sacrificed, who is the type, the lesser picture of what is greater, Jesus Christ, the antitype, Jesus sees that and says, they understand. They trust in what I've instructed them. They are demonstrating faith. And so there is the Passover. But there's a reference here to the destroyer. Who is the destroyer? Let's take a look. If you go to Psalm 78, I'm going to take you to Psalm 78. And if you want, you can go there. This is one we're going to move a little more quickly through. But you're going to start seeing connections. And they're cool connections. You're going to start to see that, wow, Pastor, you got something here. You're just not giving us a bunch of, hey, this is my view and Scripture can't back it up. Let's take a look here. The answer to who is the destroyer, according to Psalms, the destroyer is a group or a company of angels. Not demons. Not not Yahweh himself, but Yahweh using his own angels in the form of judgment. They're coming to take the life in judgment. So here we go. 
Uh, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 4. Let's start here, just so we have some context of what's going on. Give, o, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And this is a, a psalm of Asaph. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings. In other words, difficult sayings for you to hear, to understand. Sayings of judgment is another way of saying dark sayings from of old. These things we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. And listen to what he says here. We just got done having PJ tell us what they did with the Passover, what, what Christ said you must do. You must teach your children. Listen to what Psalm says. Listen to what Asaph says in response to knowing what they've been commanded to do about the Passover. In verse 4, he says, We will not hide them from their children, but to tell, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might and the wonders that he has done. This is the Passover they're telling them about. This whole thing of the might of Christ to bring about a Passover. Not just the meal, the passing over, the salvation of the saints, while at the same time judging those who refuse God, who are the enemy of God, who are the seed of the serpent, who stand in the way of evil. This is it. And let me, let me do a hyperlink all the way to verse 40. Find verse 40 if you can in Psalm 78. How often they have rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Now he's going to talk to, he's going to, talk to the Israelites and say, Look, you people have been from of old a rebellious people. And he's talking about their forgetting the Passover. So watch this. They, they're talking about the people of the wilderness after the Passover. They, those people, they tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. Now we're going to get to the specific day of the Passover. Or the day when he redeemed them from the, from the foe. When he performed his signs in Egypt and marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned there, speaking of the Egyptians, rivers to blood. So in other words, they're getting the, the judgment so that they could not drink of the streams. He sent them among the swarm of... He sent among them swarms of flies, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He gave, them crop, he gave their crops to the destroying locusts, and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail, and their sycamores with frost. That word in the Hebrew can be devastating flood. When the, when the hail comes, so does the devastating waters and floods. That's the picture there. There's no inc- incongruity. There's no... Uh, Wait, what happened? We didn't hear about a frost uh, type of uh, uh, plague. Well, that's because the ESV chose to list it as frost instead of devastating floods. Let's continue on. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. And here, verse 49. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress. And who does he do it through? A company of destroying angels. He made a path for, excuse me, he made a path for his anger. Yes, verse 50. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down the firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strengths in the tents of Ham. He, then 52, here's the contrast. Then he led his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He was a savior to the Israelites and a destroyer by way of judgment using his destroying angels uh, to the Egyptians. So which person of the Trinity does Paul recognize as the manifest deliverer of Israel out of Egypt? We're going to look at that. I just proved to you from the Old Testament that it's Christ. I'm going to prove to you from the New Testament that it's Christ. Yahweh referenced here in our passage in the Passover, the one who is passing through and judgment and passing over in salvation is Christ. And we're also going to, Paul also takes on who the destroyer is. Both of those are dealt with, and you maybe haven't seen it before. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 9. I'm sorry I have to use so, that sounds terrible. I'm sorry I have to use so much scripture. What a dumb thing for a pastor to say. I'm thrilled I get to use so much scripture. Praise God that he lays it out for us so we can't leave it to speculation and go, well, I'm not sure. No, he puts it in here. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 9, he says this, For I, in other words, Paul, do not want you, the Corinthians, to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. You see here the Passover, this event, 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, the cloud being the, cloud, the pillar of smoke that he's re- referencing here, and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. Interesting, spiritual food. That's good. Let's talk more about this. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual, your Bibles, I've looked through the vibe that I was looking through, all of them have a capital R, they get it, the translators get it, it says this, for they all drank from the spiritual rock, capital R, that followed them. And the the reason why this is an easy, underhanded pitch for them to hit, the, the translators of the Bible, is because Paul tells you who the rock is. Watch what Paul tells us. That followed them. The spiritual rock that followed them, the one that was either the pillar of smoke or the pillar of fire, and by way of he's in the pillar of smoke and in the pillar of fire, just as he was at the burning bush, he was in the flame. It says this, and the rock was Christ. He didn't say the rock was the Father. He didn't say the rock was the Spirit. He said the rock was Christ. Christ comes down and says, I'm going to be in your presence in the New Testament. Christ did the same in the Passover. I'm going to come down and I'm going to be in your presence. And that's what we see. He is the one leading them out of of the land of Egypt and bondage to, to slavery. He is the one that leads them through the wilderness and they won't believe him. And so there's this back and forth. But it is Christ Jesus that is manifest and present with them. He is the four. I hate to say forerunner because it could be misunderstood. He is first seen in the Old Testament in the physical salvation, and we see him in the New Testament in the spiritual salvation. It continues, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, speaking of the Israelites and the, that back and forth of them not trusting God. Verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did, demonstrating, look, they were acting like the seed of the serpent when they were out in the wilderness. They weren't acting like the saved people of God who he saved out of bondage. So that's why he, with a reference to evil, do not be idolaters. Interesting word. Do not be those that spiritually worship another God. That's what they were acting like. And some of them were, as it is written, the people, and some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did and 25,000 fell in a single day. We must not put who to the test? We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. The Old Testament saints put Christ to the test? Yes, they did. When they did not follow and obey and trust in his faith, when they were in the wilderness being led by the second person of the Trinity. That is what Paul is pointing out. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And most of your Bibles have a capital D. Don't confuse that with Jesus Christ. It's given a capital D because Paul does an interesting thing here. He recognizes that Christ is actually the, the overarching authority that is leading the angels into the judgment. They are carrying out the judgment uh, of Yahweh, the angel of God, the second person of the Trinity. They are his mechanism, but it's actually Yahweh who is the one overseeing it. So if you were to answer me, this is one that, that, that students love and teachers um, kind of smile at. Who is the, who is the, is the destroyer Jesus? The answer is yes. Is the destroyer not Jesus? Yes. In other words, either question, even answer. In one sense, it's a company of angels. If you're talking about the, the specific context. But if you look at the way Paul characterizes it, look, Jesus is the one directing. So therefore, Jesus is seen as the, the destroyer. We do it all the time. I did it with the, in the police department. When some of my people failed to do something, I would have to talk to the citizens and say, that was my error. I take responsibility for that. It's that, that overarching responsibility. That's what Jesus, Jesus is the one who, who brought the angels to bring judgment. So in that sense, he is the destroyer. He is the judge. He is the one that brings judgment. And you say, how can that be? Let's take a look at this. Let me ask a, uh, one more question on this topic. How does our age, the age we are living in now, this is referred to as the church age. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning by his Father's right hand, or at his Father's right hand. The idea there is he has all authority. The right hand means authority. Jesus has been given all authority to rule and reign. He's physically in heaven. 
We know that, uh, if I can use the word physically, because there's so much to that, but I'm trying to give you some context to work with here. How does our age, the church age with Jesus ruling from heaven, come to to an end? How does this age, the church age, come to an end? Well, Revelation tells us, and we shouldn't be surprised what Revelation tells us, because this is the same thing that happened in the Passover. The judge comes. Look at Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Turn to Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Revelation 19, 11 to 16 says this. This is John. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it called, remember, he's seeing. There's an appearance. We don't see appearance in the Father, the person of the Father, or of the Holy Spirit. The one sitting on it called faithful and true. These are names of Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. If you understand the Passover, the burning bush, the pillar of fire, does this surprise you? No. Is this a reference to Jesus Christ as a purifying, the fire in the Bible often sees as purifying, certainly, but more so, fire, God is constantly referred to, Christ is constantly referred to in the Old Testament as a consuming fire. It is judgment. So we see this. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, those are crowns, and he has written on the... He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, his own blood, and by the, na- by the name by which he is called, excuse me, and by, excuse, I wish I could say it today, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Well, John has already told us the Word of God is Jesus incarnate. We know that. We clearly have the second person of the Trinity here. And the armies of heaven. Who are the armies of heaven? The companies of angels. Hello, boys. Come on. We're going down to take care of business. We're making all things right. We're bringing justice finally to a world filled with injustice. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Remember that? We constantly see that. When When they engage mankind, they take the form of a man, and oftentimes they're separated by this reference to linen or brightness or something along that line. Arrayed, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, with, with following him, excuse me, and we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword and with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. The idea is absolute justice. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. He took on the fury of the wrath of God for us when he died on the cross. But to the, those that would not accept that, they get the full fury of the wrath of God upon them. The, um, the, the, excuse me, winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe are his, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We just saw through the other nine plagues that Christ has brought on the Egyptians that he's demonstrating to them that your false gods are nothing compared to me. They may come from the heavenly realms as fallen angels. They are nothing. I am Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And we see the whole connection to the Bible. The Bible doesn't become, isn't 66 separate books. The Bible is one book with 66 different chapters, if you will. It's a beautiful picture. So who is it who saved the Israelites and who saved the saints of this age? Well, it's not a hippie loving God. PJ, I can appreciate your uh, Sunday school lesson today. It's not this identification. We in the new, in the evangelical mainstream church, we see so much, God is love, 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 God is love. God just loves you. God wants you to be happy. God is love, God is love. They miss. You have a warped understanding of God. He makes war. He brings justice. He is a just God. Any person that is not just is not trustworthy. If you can't trust them with ultimate righteousness or justice when there's an infraction, there is not trustworthiness. That only comes through a God who brings about ultimate justice. All the other gods, of whether they be of the Greeks, of the, of, the, of the pantheon of gods of the Old Testament and ancient Near East, they are capricious gods. They do what they do, and they do it for their own pleasure. They are not righteous or just. He is the only God that is righteous and just. He is therefore the only God trustworthy of, of our allegiance to him.
Who is the one that passes through? He is Jesus, faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So let me finish with this, and we'll take just five more minutes. Part two, bullet point two of our, of our sermon, of this lesson, of our message, is how is the pass, Passover the transmitter of faith? And I, when I, I'm using the word transmitter. For some of you that are younger, you might see that they are streaming. For you that are older, you'll hear the radio broadcasting. Um, and just give an idea of how does this transmit faith? How is it coming out and going to the people, to the masses? Well, first off, you see it in your bullet points. It broadcasts the reality of life. And the reality of life is that life is either lived in slavery to Pharaoh, in slavery to Satan, or it is lived in the freedom to worship Yahweh. Those are the two choices that have been since the beginning, since Genesis 3.15. We saw them again in the Passover. They're still the only two choices today. We, were, we all came until Christ saved us, changed our hearts, and, and, and transforms our hearts to where we wanted to respond in faith. We all came out of that slavery. Came out of different ages, different experiences, but we were all in bondage to the, to the slavery. But God, through his graciousness, came down from heaven. He did it in the Passover. He does it in the New Testament. That is his graciousness, his love for his people. We, we read there in verses 24 to 28, you shall observe, the idea there is, the word is shamar, it means keep through obedience, this right as a statue for you. He's talking about the Passover. He's talking about the, 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 everything about the Passover, the meal, everything, and for your sons forever. And when they come to, to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep, you shall keep through obedience. In other words, this service, interesting, five other times he's used this word avad in, in the uh, Hebrew to reference the harsh service. He's contrasting. He's saying, you get the harsh service of Pharaoh or you get the, the service to God of joyful, heartfelt worship of your God. This is where he, he makes a pivot. He makes a contrast here. Let me read it again. The, this serv- uh, let me back up, 25. And when you come to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service, this Passover service, this, this, this meal, this, this whole understanding of who God is and how he has brought about this, this worship, to be able to worship Christ God, the triune God, with freedom, freedom of heart. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Oh, look at this. He gave us a command to demonstrate that which Christ did by way of a Passover meal. And what do the children do? The children ask, why are we doing this? What does this mean? Hear the transmitter of faith? Oh, glad you asked, child. Let me tell you what this means. Ever wonder what you, how, to, how to preach, excuse me, how to teach your children about salvation? Use the story of the Passover as a starting point. God commanded the Hebrews. They didn't die from, it's too gross, it's too over, it's too violent. Teach. Teach them about the judgment that, that is faced by those who do not place their trust in the Lamb's blood. Teach them. It says this. Let me, let me, the part B of this. The Passover broadcast not only the reality of slavery or freedom to worship Christ, Yahweh, B, the Passover broadcast a, a need to have faith in Yahweh's salvation or receive justice. You get two things at the end of your life. You either receive the fruit of your faith, eternal life, or you receive the justice that you and everyone that has ever transgressed deserves from God. It's just the reality. That's what, the, that's what it, the Passover gives us. And do you know what that reality is? Do you realize that the Passover is actually the gospel? The Passover is the first fuller understanding in the Bible of the gospel. We are damned lest God come down from heaven and save us by the blood of the sacrificed lamb. So now, let, let me lead you this, leave you with this, church. Teach the children the fullness of the pa- Passover truths. 
for in it is the message of the gospel. We must, and then finally, our charge that we let off with, we must reverentially fear, serve, and share the truth of the one who strikes his enemies but spares his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We are amazed by you. So many elements of the New Testament are right there. You are an incredible God. These are not disjointed understandings. This is you sharing who you are. We thank you. We thank you that we are given this command to go into the world and teach it, teach the gospel, to start even with the littlest disciples you've given us, our own children. Father, help us be a church that rightly brings up the children of God and takes the message out to the world for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.